everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim and it is finally, finally spooky season. And whether or not you believe in ghosts, let me tell you, the Victorian sure did. I have some spooky episodes lined up for you this month and I hope you love them. Tonight's story is famously known as the only case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. This is the story of the Greenbrier ghost. But first, the Victorian Society tip. In tonight's story, you'll hear about how a young girl was swept off her feet by a handsome new stranger who comes to town. Unfortunately, as you might have already guessed, it goes badly for her. So it got me wondering, how else is someone to meet their spouse in the Victorian era? And I started reading about lonely heart ads, or matrimonial advertisements as they were known then. They place personal ads in the newspapers, just like us. If you're not familiar with personal ads, matrimonial advertisements could also be described as a Victorian version of a dating site profile. People would place an ad in the newspaper with a little info about themselves and what they were seeking and wait for responses. It took a lot longer, of course, but they were a thing. Here are three matrimonial advertisements for your enjoyment. First one, a bill for a wife. Charles Warren, Warnhill, Dorset. My family is as follows. The eldest boy is 13 years old. The younger boy is five years old and a girl eight years old. My house is my own and I have no rent to pay. I have an acre of potatoes, half blue and half whites this year. My wife has been dead 13 months ago, last Schroten Fair. The children live with themselves in the daytime, but I am always at home with them at night. I do think it would be better if there was a woman to look after them, both for the children and myself. I have got eight shillings a week for my work and the boy two shillings a week and have constant employ. I want a good and steady woman between 30 and 40 years old for a wife. I do not want a second family. I want a woman to look after the pigs while I'm out at work. I don't think he was referring to his children as pigs at the end there, but one can never be sure. On to bachelor number two. A very pretty little boy, age a year and a half, who has had the misfortune to lose his dear mama, wishes in this manner, as he seldom comes in contact with the ladies, to find a new mama who, however, must also be capable by tenderness and delicacy of sentiment of affording a faithful companion for life for his papa. My papa is an architect who fills an important social position, therefore I am unfortunately obliged, beside delicacy of sentiment, to look out for some fortune, so that my papa may be content with my new mama in every respect. So, bachelor number one or bachelor number two, who are you choosing? The last ad is from a lady this time. A young girl, 17 years of age, who knows how to make a good soup, desires to marry someone, no matter who, and would not object to a person with a broken leg. I feel like this one is directed at someone specific who was just not getting the hint. Good luck out there, everyone. Before we get started, I just wanted to read a very nice review that was submitted for the show on Apple Podcasts. The show doesn't have too many reviews so far, so if you're enjoying the content and are inclined to leave a review, I'll probably read it on here, if that's any incentive. So this review is from Raven Disaster. Raven, like the bird, so clever. And the review says, a true crime podcast set during the Victorian times? Sign me up. The episodes are jam-packed with information, but not in a way that might feel boring. It's entertaining, and you learn something interesting. Can't wait for more. 
Raven, such kind words. Thank you. Again, I am just starting out. I am a team of exactly one. And if you want to leave a review to help support the show, that would be amazing. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. The year is 1896, and a handsome stranger has recently arrived in the village of Livesay's Mill in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. His name is Erasmus Stribling Shoe, though he introduces himself as Edward and tells everyone to call him by his nickname, Trout. I'm going to call him Edward. So Edward is 35 years old. He's a tall, strong, good-looking young man who has traveled to Greenbrier County from Droop Mountain in Pocahontas County, Virginia, and he is looking for work as a blacksmith. He's hired by local blacksmith James Crookshanks, and it isn't long before he gains a reputation of a swell guy who is generally liked by the community. Now, Edward catches the eye of 20-year-old Elva Zona Heaster, a farmer's daughter who goes by her middle name Zona, and she is immediately smitten with him. And Edward is quite taken with her as well. Now, there's only one problem here, which is Zona's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, doesn't quite like something about Edward, but she can't quite put her finger on it. He hasn't really given her any reason not to like him, and he is generally well-liked in town after all. So when Edward and Zona begin courting, her mother doesn't have much of an argument to make against it. And shortly thereafter, Edward and Zona are married on October 20th, 1897. They move into a modest log house over the mountain from Zona's family home. And all seems to be going well for the newlyweds. Until... Three months into their marriage, on January 24, 1897, when Edward, who was at work in town, walks as far as one of the nearest neighbor's houses and asks if their son can run and check in on his wife to see if she needs him to bring anything back from the store from town for her, or just to see if she needs anything at all because she hadn't been feeling well that day, apparently. The boy's mom says, well, he's doing chores right now, but sure, I'll send him around later. And Edward seems a little perturbed by this, but he says, okay, and he goes back to work. He dropped in again at least one more time, if not more, to check if the boy had gone to check on Zona yet. And finally, around 1 p.m., 12-year-old Andy Jones makes his way over to the shoe residence to deliver the message from Edward to his wife. As he approaches, he notices the house is completely shut up, and it's very quiet. As he gets closer, he notices blood on the front porch leading into the house. Now, this is the Appalachia Mountain region in West Virginia. These are country and farm folk, and the sight of a little bit of blood isn't usually enough to ring the alarm bells in someone's mind. So Andy knocks on the door, but he gets no answer. He thinks to himself, well, Mr. Shoe said she wasn't well. What if she needs help in there? And after all, he was sent there to do a job. He has to go in. So he tries the front door and finds it unlocked. And he goes inside and he follows the trail of blood through the house until he finds Zona splayed out on the floor in the dining room, unmoving and eyes open. Andy reaches down to shake her by the shoulder and finds her cold and stiff and he runs. He runs back to his own house where he tells his mother what he found and they both run straight to town to tell Edward first and then the doctor. Edward immediately rushes home and the doctor, Dr. Knapp, arrives about an hour later. When he gets there, he finds that Edward has moved Zona's body from where it was found in the dining room upstairs to the bed in their bedroom, 
and he had already washed and dressed her in one of her nicest gowns. In fact, I believe it was the same dress she wore for their wedding, which was burgundy in color, I believe, and had a high Victorian era style collar on it. He'd also draped a veil over her head and used some ribbon to secure it that he tied in this large, like, flouncy bow under her chin. Now, the fact that Edward had cleaned and dressed her is kind of unusual. In Victorian tradition and regional tradition, it was always women who would prepare a body for burial. You know, it was kind of a thing, helping with labor and birth and also preparing a body for death was women's work. So that was a little strange, but he's obviously grief-stricken. I mean, he only met and married his young bride a little over three months ago. So the doctor has to perform an exam to determine the cause of death. And the whole time, Edward stands by Zona's head, kind of cradling it in her arms, protecting her, sort of. And anytime the doctor tries to examine her shoulders or above, Edward is so grief-stricken that he kicks up wailing and crying and frankly won't let the doctor get any closer to her. So the doctor recognizes this man has had a shock and he does not want to make things worse and he lists her cause of death as everlasting faint, which is Victorian speak for heart attack. She was 23. Anyway, the doctor goes and everyone begins to prepare for the funeral. At the funeral, Edward has added a scarf to Zona's neck that does not match her dress and when her mother remarks on it, he says, well, it was her favorite and she'd want to be wearing it. He's also rolled up a sheet and some sort of jacket or other garment and placed them on either side of her head so she can be comfortable, he says. And the entire time, he hovers near the head of the casket, kind of crying, wailing, leaning over her, especially if anyone starts to come too close. And a lot of people think this is a little odd, but who are they to say? He's in mourning, right? When Zona's mother, Mary Jane, who distrusted him in the first place, sees this, she can just feel it in her bones that something is not right. But for now, she keeps this to herself. And after the funeral, and after her daughter is buried, Mary Jane goes home. She has with her the sheet that Edward placed beside Zona's head, and she goes to wash it. And as she dips it into the washing basin, although the sheet was clean, Mary Jane watches as the water briefly turns a deep shade of red, as if blood were soaking out of the cloth. But she only sees this for a moment, and then it's gone. Mary Jane takes this as a sign that her instincts about Edward and her daughter's death were right, and she suspects foul play. So, Mary Jane starts to pray. She prays and she prays for weeks that her daughter will come back so she can know what truly happened to her. And then, one night... As Mary Jane is laying in bed, having just finished her prayers, she sees a light in the hallway. The light grows closer and closer until it enters her room and fills it with a chill. At first, the light isn't very bright, but it starts to organize itself around one central point and get brighter until Mary Jane sees her daughter standing at the foot of her bed. And her daughter speaks to her. She tells her that things with Edward were not as they seemed, that he was an angry man and violent. And on the night before her death, he came home and was angry that Zona hadn't made any meat to go with supper. So he grabbed her by the neck and he snapped it. Then Zona turned her head completely around 360 degrees and walked out of the room, staring backwards at her mother and dissolved into the night. Mary Jane says Zona visited her four nights in a row. And after the fourth night, she can't keep this to herself anymore. She goes to visit the local prosecutor, James Preston, and she starts pleading her case. 
She describes the dress Zona was found in, and she describes the wounds that they'll find on her. Maybe Preston had a bit of an intuition himself, or he felt he owed it to this grieving mother, but he asks a few questions around town, and he learns about Edward's unusual behavior at the funeral. He does a bit of background check on Edward's character, and he's surprised to learn that Edward has in fact been married twice before. His first marriage ended in divorce, with his wife citing his violent temper as the reason, and his second marriage ended after less than a year when Edward was widowed as the result of an accident in which Edward was on the roof doing some brickwork and accidentally dropped a basket of bricks on his second wife's head. He also learned that during a prison stay for horse theft, Edward often bragged about his goal to marry seven women in his lifetime. Preston then speaks to the doctor who examined Zona after her death, Dr. Knapp, and Dr. Knapp admits, well, no, he did not carry out a full examination on Zona, Edward wouldn't let him. So the prosecutor decides they need to open a case, and they're going to exhume Zona to perform a full autopsy. Of course, Edward protests, but he can't stop them, and they exhume Zona and Dr. Knapp and two other doctors carry out a full autopsy in a one-room schoolhouse down the road from the cemetery. They find bruising on her neck and throat, torn and ruptured ligaments in her neck, a crushed windpipe, and that her neck was broken between the first and second vertebrae just as Mary Jane described, and they officially change her cause of death to strangulation. A coroner's inquest is held, and a little over a month after Zona's death, Edward is charged with murder. The trial begins June 30th of the same year, and Edward pleads not guilty. In fact, he seems pretty confident that due to the circumstantial nature of the case, he'll be fine. He goes as far as to remark to reporters that they won't be able to prove a thing. Now, when Zona's mother, Mary Jane, takes a stand, the prosecution is very careful to steer clear of discussing the visions or ghostly sightings she claims to have had that started all this. But the defense dives headfirst into this narrative, relentlessly questioning her about what they dismiss as dreams, trying to discredit her and make her look crazy. But the tactic backfires on them. Mary Jane sounds so competent and sure of what she saw that she does not waver her story. She doubles down over and over that she was fully awake and her daughter came to her and told her what happened. And the jury believes her. It was very common belief during the Victorian era that our deceased loved ones could be summoned from the other side to communicate with us. This was believed even more so within certain communities in the Appalachia Mountain region. It took the jury only one hour to return a verdict of guilty and recommend a sentence of life in prison, which the judge agreed with. Following the trial, before Edward could be transferred to the state prison to serve his sentence, a lynch mob tried to break into the prison with the goal of hanging Edward. But the deputy sheriff managed to disband the mob, and Edward was transferred to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia, where he lived for another three years before dying of a flu epidemic that swept the prison in the year 1900 at the age of 38. He was buried in the prison cemetery, which is known today as White Gate Cemetery in Moundsville, West Virginia. Zona is buried in the Soul Chapel Methodist Cemetery in Meadow Bluff, West Virginia. In 1881, the state put up a historical marker nearby that reads, Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison, only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. So what do we make of this one? Do you believe that Zona's ghost appeared to her mother to help her catch her murderer? Or do we not believe in ghost stories? 
I mean, it's possible Mary Jane truly believed she saw her daughter's spirit, but she was also a grieving mother who was perhaps just desperate for one last word with her daughter. Mary Jane did know that she never saw the apparition of her daughter again after that, and she did hold fast to her story for her whole life. It could also be said that Mary Jane was acting on a bit of mother's intuition, but she knew they wouldn't take her seriously as a woman and bereaved mother, so she made up the ghost bit. Either way, she did know some key facts that she herself was not there to witness, like the dress Zona was wearing that day and where the break in her neck was, reportedly. I would love to hear what you think. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder, you can let me know there, plus see some photos of Zona and Edward and some other photos. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send episode roundups, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier Patreons for this episode is another story from the Appalachian Mountains where premonitions in the form of dreams help solve a mystery. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit goodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a goodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.